Well, many of the conversations that you may have regarding Christianity with that skeptical friend are questions regarding the truth of Christianity and objections against Christianity's truth. But also you probably, if you're like me, hear a lot of questions on the goodness of Christianity, that if God really is good or he exists, why are things, you know, Christianity seems unfair, it seems not good, or it seems oppressive and controlling. And so I think one of the things that we need to do if we are going to be engaging this cultural moment and having conversations and pointing people to the Christian faith we need to be able to show that Christianity not only is true, but it is good and it is beautiful, that it actually satisfies the deep longings and desires that people have. And today's conversation will helpfully bring some of that out. And my guest today, I think, does an incredible job doing this in his work, as well as the new book that just came out, A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understand Our Universe and Our Place in It. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. But my name is Ryan Pauly. Let me introduce myself. This is Think Well. Thanks for joining us today. Today, as we, as I try to help you think well and engage the culture well by exposing you to deep Christian thinkers to help you do that. And as we come up to the end of the year, also, if you want to give an end of the year gift, I would greatly appreciate that as well. But my guest today is Dr. Paul Gould. He is associate professor of philosophy at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's also the director of the philosophy of religion master's program at Palm Beach Atlantic as well. He is the founder and president of the Two Tasks Institute, Apologetics Institute and podcast, and uh, author of this, as well as other books that we'll mention here just in a moment. But Dr. Gould, thank you for coming on the show and joining me again. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here uh, again, I guess, three years to the month. So glad to be back. Yeah, as I was just about to mention, in November 2019, uh, you came in to talk about your last book, Cultural Apologetics, a wonderful work that I really appreciated. Uh, I went back today and I looked at that video. I posted it. If you're watching on YouTube, I posted a link to it below. Um, It's kind of embarrassing, uh, but you can see and appreciate how far this show has come over the three years of existence. You were my third YouTube interview. And let's just say I didn't have streaming software. I didn't have anything that I have now. uh, And it was pretty ghetto, but I really do appreciate it. Uh, you joining me then and coming back on again now and all the work that you are doing. You bet. You bet. You must have done a great job. I remember it. Then. Enjoyed it. So well done. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, as we jump in, you know, there's there's a lot of, kind of I guess, conversations around the truth, the goodness of Christianity, uh, providing evidence and reasons to believe it. Um, what is maybe unique about this new work that you're kind of putting out there? Why write this book that you have a good and true story? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's certainly lots of books in this lane, right? Like apologetics books or books. Uh, so this is a book written to non-believers. It's I think Christians would benefit from it. I benefited from the research yeah. and studying and writing it. I guess the way that I think about it um, is, you know, it, back in 2019, when we were ta- talked last time, I had just finished this book, Cultural Apologetics. And that was a book written for Christians, just wrestling with the question, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture? And that was that was what I was wrestling with there. And in that book, though, there are two things I said um, in the more prescriptive part of that book. Um, and, and how do we join with God and each other and the Holy Spirit to re-enchant the world? And my, my two suggestions were, number one, that we as Christians <clears throat> would learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, that we would learn to invite others to see and delight in the way the world the way Jesus does. And those two ideas are two future book projects, of which this book that we're talking about today is that second idea, helping others to see the good, the true, the beautiful, and how it all connects to God. And so that's kind of the, the heart behind it. It's not a book about cultural apologetics. I kind of view it as a work of cultural apologetics, where I'm trying to embody the kind of robust view of um 
you know, presenting the goodness and truth and beauty of the gospel uh, that is sort of unique to my own way. And so, yeah, so that's kind of what's going on uh, and why I wrote it. And I actually, I could share a little bit more. I'll, I'll stop there, but uh, I do have some some specific theses that shape the way that I uh, wrote the book I did. The yeah, way and, I did. And, uh, yeah, I'll let you share that here in just a second. But one thing I just truly appreciate about the work that you do and, and what you just mentioned there is it really does line up with, you know, the work that I do with Maven, right? Our, our theme at Maven is, is no truth, pursue right. goodness, create beauty. It's all about truth goodness and beauty. I was just teaching today in my philosophy of ethics class to my seniors in high school, we're covering the ethics of entertainment. And I'm trying to get them to say or see when you listen to music, when you watch movies, what is this saying is true? And is that true? What is this saying is good? And is that good? And what is it actually showing you that is beautiful about the world? And so this is something that I'm constantly drilling into my students and trying to understand the different, you know, what is true, good, and beautiful. And so I love how you kind of tie this in and show that Christianity is true, good, and beautiful. So it really resonates and, and hits home with me and how I try to approach work with students. And I really see this come through and I appreciate how you do that as well. And so, uh, yeah, if you want to kind of lay out some of those theses that, that kind of go into this work, uh, I'd love to kind of work from there. Yeah. So there are three things that were in the background as I was thinking about shaping and, and why I think that a book like this is still needed. And one is a thesis about reality that, that, is rich within the Christian tradition, but uh, I, I don't think we think about this and make connections to apologetics. And And this is a thesis about the structure of reality as a kind of story, actually, right? So I love like Calvin, you know, in the Institutes, he says that um, he looks up at the heavens and the sky and, and, and he describes it as a dazzling theater of God's glory, right? This idea of a theater where there's a divine author. And so the and so the, the traditional way of kind of understanding reality as a story is this idea that all things come from God, and then all, all one day all things will return to God. And so there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, an ongoing thing. And that's a kind of story, right? That's the structure of a story. So that's a thesis about reality, actually, and uh, that feeds to a thesis about human us humans, uh, human persons, and that's that we are, as many philosophers and historians and, and literary critics have noticed that we're, we're narratival animals, that we're creatures that live according to a story. We see ourselves as part of a story, and actually we're, we're seeking that true story of the world in which we find our identity and our meaning and our purpose. And so, so there's this thesis that, that not only is reality like a story, but that we are creatures that come into this world and we're seeking that true story to find our meaning and purpose. And then the last thesis is the thesis about evidence uh, for God. And that's that's the idea that Stephen Evans in his wonderful little book, uh, Natural Signs and the Knowledge of God, he talks about how the evidence for God is widely available and easily resistible. And what he means is that it's everywhere you look, right? There's evidence, but it can be it misinterpreted and it needs to be properly interpreted. And so in writing this book, I want to respect humans as fully embodied humans that are on a quest and that are, that we care about the truth, right? We are rational animals. We care about our mind, but we're more than that. We're moral animals. We're imaginative animals. We're embodied creatures. And so, so um, I just invite them on a journey of discovery. And those are the sort of background assumptions that shape the way uh, that I do this. Plus, you know, I want to write for, have fun writing. So we have lots of, uh, <laughs> fun things that take place in the journey. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you mentioned that, you know, it makes me think of like, you know, that this idea of like kind of, we long for the story. You say this in the introduction, we long for a story that is both true to the way the world is and true to the way the world ought to be. In other words, the deep longing of the human heart is for a story that is true and satisfying. And, and I think that that, is true. But then at the same time, you know, my, my, the objection comes to mind of like, but there's a lot of people that just kind of don't care. They seem very apathetic. They're more, um, 
more seeking after being entertained um, and just trying to figure out what's fun rather than really trying to f- have this deep longing of how do I fit into this big story? Uh, so how would you kind of play out that thought of like this kind of apathetic world and maybe people that we live in versus really, is it true that we can say all people have this deep longing and desire to fit into this true story? No, that's a really great question. I mean, I think it's true that, so this is part of the earlier work, um, you know, I use the language of we live in a disenchanted world. And, and part of that is this idea that that we no longer see the world in its proper light. And so we, we don't even see and experience reality and then, and then delight in reality the way that we're, we're created to as creatures. So I do think that, that this disenchanted world that we find, which is in many ways, one of the chief characteristics of a dis- disenchanted world is the felt absence of God. And there's a kind of reshuffling of the desires toward the sensate and the physical and the immediate. And so what happens is that in a disenchanted age, we often deaden our deep longings of the heart or we're not able to properly identify them. And so like, for example, um, one of the things that we see is a rise in this vice. It's actually a vice, but now we view it as a virtue of apathy, right? Yeah. And there's even this movement, as you just alluded to, you know, apathyism. We don't care about the God question anymore. Let's just go have fun and eat pizza, right? Or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that part of what we need to do is shock people to wrestle with reality and shock people to, to wrestle with the deep longings of the human heart. So if it's in fact the case that we've been created to be nourished on the good, the true, and the beautiful, as you know, we often say, and that if it in fact is the case that that our highest good is union with God. So this is objectively the case. What we need to do is awaken them to the subjective deep longings of the heart that are being repressed or covered over because of culture and, and, and all the you know confusing things. So I would just say part of our and this is this is the idea of the, the, what I said earlier that we need to help people and invite others to see the world the way Jesus does, and then to see all things in relation to God, right? Um, so it's a, it's a perceptual problem that leads to a, an emotional problem where we fail to properly perceive the value of the world, and that leads to a kind of deadening of desires. They're not eradicated, they're just um, repressed. That's what yeah. I would say. Yeah. So how would you go about communicating that with someone? Cause I had a phone call just last week, kind of someone was a little bit upset with me uh, of is how I communicated this idea that uh, the God has made his uh, existence obvious. Like as Romans chapter one says, the, you know, God's existence is, is clearly perceived in the creation of the world. And, and so this idea that if you're not perceiving it, that there's something kind of been deadened or that our desires have been twisted where we're seeking after things that are not good because the ultimate objective good, as you said, there is God and communion with him. And so to seek after, after pleasure or these other things is actually a twisted desire. And, and he kind of took offense to that of like, then you're, you're implying that people are twisted. You're implying that, uh, that people are not honestly seeking after God and just finding something else as being a better option. Um, how would you go about kind of commuting that, uh, communicating that, but then also kind of awakening them to that reality? That's really good. So, so even before communicating that, let me tell you how I'm conceptualizing it. Um, is and this is from Eleanor Stump in her book "Wandering on Dark in the Dark in, Wandering in Darkness," which is a wonderful book on the problem of evil and suffering by uh, a wonderful Christian philosopher, Eleanor Stump. But um, in there, she talks about a lot about our desires, and she she talks about so think about the set of all the longings we have, all the desires that every human has, right? And think of it as think of that set as a kind of inverted triangle, right? So at the top of that inverted triangle, triangle, you've got all your surface desires. So it could be the, you know, these desires for pleasure are actually deeper longings. I think they're actually good longings, right? They're, they're things that we should own. They're, they're, they're good, intrinsically valuable things. So as you go down that 
inverted triangle, you get to your deeper desires. And then, of course, at the bottom, you have the deepest longing of the heart for God. Not that we're always aware of it, but, um, but it's there. So if you think about this, the set of desires that we have shaped like an inverted triangle, right b- above that deepest desire, as Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God, right? That deepest desire. Right above that, I think I would put these deep longings of the heart for goodness, truth, beauty, meaning, purpose, justice, happiness, and identity, and, and things like that. And then you just pick one of those, right? So they may, might be like, well, I don't long for God. What do you mean? I'm, I'm happy with pleasure. I'm happy with success. I'm happy with, you know, whatever, you know, what, pick it. My guess is it's going to be connected in some way to one of those deep longings of the heart. Maybe it's a longing for justice. If it's pleasure, it's a longing for happiness, right? And that the idea is that happiness is somehow found in pleasure. That's a very, uh, you know, Benthium and Millian idea, but it's there. Utilitarian idea. Um, <clears throat> and so I would just probe, th- I would probe that. So to your question of how to discuss it then, given that sort of conceptual way of thinking about it, I've found that just asking the question, this, this two-part question has been really helpful on this. First of all, what is it that you want? Um, and then, but probe, like don't, like, what do you really, like, what are you really after? Probe for the, the deeper things, not just that hamburger that you want, right? But what is it that you really want? And in asking those kinds of questions, um, <clears throat> I think we surface very naturally in a non-confrontational way, the deep longings of the heart. And then you yeah. have a conversation about those. That's my quick thought. No, I think that's really good. And it reminds me of a conversation I had in, in a high school class uh, where we, we got done kind of talking, comparing different views on something. And, and, and one student kind of sharing, he's like, I, what I remember is like, my, my, my idea on this has changed. And I go, interesting. Like, why are you kind of leaning towards a Christian view now? And he goes, because I have a desire for justice, for true justice. Exactly. And, and, and I see that being possible and I can see why that's not possible. If, if, yeah, if it, in the end we all just die and we end up in the same place, there's no ultimate justice where the bad person can be bad and live a wonderful life and never get punished or for it. And the good person can die young and you think that it was taken from them. And he goes, I think it's, I, I want justice. And I, and I see that. And it's like, that's exactly what you're talking about here is, is probing those deep desires that sometimes we have. And, and what is it that we desire? We all have those desires. Now, you mentioned here as well, and you mentioned in the very beginning of the book, um, one of those, I think, deep things that our, that our country, that people are, are, are searching for is identity of who am I and kind of who defines us. And in the introduction to your book, you mentioned that you cannot answer the question of identity until you answer the question of story. So kind of lay out what you mean there and why you can't answer identity questions without the story question. Yeah, and I I love the quote there. You're reading part of it by Hannah Arendt, who um, says, you know, whenever we ask the question, who am I? You know, you can't answer that with purely qualitative um, features. You have to answer it uh, by understanding the story of which you're the the main character, the hero. And I think she's right there. And I think so. So the reason why I really resonate with that quote, and many people have noticed this, Alistair McIntyre's a well-known philosopher who in one of his chapters, chapter 10 in After Virtue, famously said that, you know, we can't understand what we ought to do un- until we understand what story we're a part of, right? So it's connected to the moral life. It's connected to um, the sense of uh, practical identity that we that we have, the the psychology we hold. Um, and I think the reason why I'm so attracted to that is because I think that theologically, and I mentioned this already, like even just metaphysically about reality as a kind of ongoing story. Like the Latins called it exodus reditus, right? Everything comes from God, everything will return to God. Um, so, so if reality is like a story, that's called narratival realism. 
And if store, if creatures are narratival animals, and in fact, not just that we are, but that we ought to live, that's called narrativism, that we ought to live according to a story. Um, I think that we in fact do, and I think we should, but I think it also betrays a deep longing, a deep intuition of the human heart. And the intuition is that reality is intelligible, right? This is why we seek the true story of the world. And as it turns out, we, so, on the Christian story, let me just put on my theology cap for a minute. You know, think of like the Great Commission in the end of the gospel where Jesus, um, you know, his last words to the disciples and he, he char- charges them to go and baptize, uh, well, to, to uh, go and make disciples and then to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what's so interesting is that baptism is a naming event, right? And it tells us that we cannot name ourselves, that we must be named by another, right? And that we find our actual true name and our identity, um, as it turns out, when we find and discover the true story of the world. And so that's what's going on there. Is, and that's what I'm thinking about. And, and the reason why I'm writing this way um, is I think that narrati- narratival realism is true. And I think that narrativism is true, that we ought to live as if we're a part of a story, because I think there's the divine story that is the one story that rules them all, to borrow from Tolkien. Um, and, and so that's how we flourish. And that's how we find our true name. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, think of like an actor who, who's just, you know, said, you know, uh, read this, this line. Uh, and, and, and you don't know if this is supposed to be a comedy. Is it a drama? Uh, what kind of movie it is? Where in the story is this taking place? Um, how you read that line and how you act in your role is going to be much different if you're in the final scene versus the introduction versus right. a comedy versus right. a drama. Uh, and so really kind of knowing what story are you a part of uh, tells us what we should be doing and how we should be acting and who we are. And there's so much involved there uh, that I think is relevant. Um, now to kind of throw out these ideas and for those who are watching live here on YouTube with us, um, there are 11 different points that you mentioned. And maybe I'm just going to throw out all 11. And if you're listening uh, and there's like one of these that sticks out in your mind, you're like, oh, I want to hear that one. Put it in the comment and uh, we can definitely touch on it. But you mentioned how 11 things, the universe, life, species, humans, morality, meaning, happiness, pain, love, beauty, and religion uh, all point to uh, this true and good story. Um, and throughout this, you're comparing the, the religious story versus the kind of the non-religious story. And so I wanna, I'll start here with the universe here really quick to kind of give people a picture of kind of how you're laying out this book and I think just a wonderful way. And so when it comes to like the universe chapter, uh, kind of what are you trying to communicate there in that chapter and how are you showing that the Christian story or the religious story is a good mm-hmm. and true story? Right. Okay, good. So, we're, so I'm inviting the reader on a journey of discovery with me, right? And I'm, I'm inviting guides to, to join us along the way, right? You don't, we don't want to travel alone. And if you think about a story, I mean, in, in the simplest uh, form, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And stories deal with the question of origin, they deal with the question of destiny, and they deal with the question of quest. And so it seemed fitting in a, in a, a book exploring and a quest to discover the true story of the world that we should engage in the four origin debates that I think are super provocative and suggestive of something that must be responsible for the world that we find. And so we begin with the universe, then life, species, and humans. uh, And the guide that joins us at this point, point in the journey is uh, Lady Nature. So I, I have all these, you know, and, and what's so interesting in, in medieval travelogues, Lady Nature would show up in a lot of these medieval works. And so I wanted her to join us, right? Show us the empirical work world, help us to see it in its proper light. And so she's pointing to things. And so in the universe chapter, she's pointing to four features of the world that are, are again, cry out for explanation. And those four features are that the world is contingent, that it exists, but it didn't have to exist. 
that the world is temporally finite, that it began a finite time ago, and that, again, is suggestive of a, a cause, um, that the world is immense since, I mean, it's just mind-bogglingly big, right? And it's just amazing. And then it's also fine-tuned on this razor's edge for life. And so we have these four features. And I just sort of play with each of those and talk about each one, and then Lady Nature guides us, and, and then we, and then, and then I put my philosopher's cap on and and consider what the best explanation is for those four facts. So that's what's going on in the first chapter. Yeah, it's good. So I think a lot of this kind of we've talked about. You know, I've had William Lane Craig on the show talking about arguments right. for God's existence, where he talks about yep. the Kalam cosmological argument. That's where you mention here in the in the finitude of our universe. Uh, you talk about the the design argument. I've had you know astronomers like Hugh Ross talk about design of the universe and how that points to God. And so you kind of mention more of those common arguments again that, that we have. But I mentioned to you before the show. I was like, one thing you talk about here and you just mentioned is number one of the contingency. And and maybe a lot of people don't even know what the word contingency means. Um, and I think this is a really strong argument for God's existence. And I don't know if I've ever actually covered it on the show. So I'd love to kind of work through maybe this argument a little bit of how you th- see contingency and the contingency argument uh, pointing to the Christian story. Oh, yeah, good. So, yeah, this is, I mean, in terms of cosmological arguments, um, one really famous and prominent strand or kind of cosmological ar- arguments are what's called Leibnizian cosmological arguments. And these are arguments from contingency. Uh, they look at the fact that we have contingent things and they argue to that there must be a necessary thing, you know, that we call God that is responsible or re- explains it. And so basically the idea is that contingent things are dependent things and dependent things, of course, depend on another for their existence, right? And so um, you make the claim, you, I mean, you begin with just empirical facts. And here's a simple one. I'm a contingent thing, right? And this this chair I'm sitting in on is a contingent thing. And in fact, as it turns out, pretty much everything that you could look at in the, in this universe seems to be a contingent thing. Now, you could talk about that. Maybe, maybe there's things that aren't, but at least the physical things, material things uh, seem to be physical things. Um, I depend on my parents and my parents depended on their parents. And you just go back all the way back. And so really there's an argument um, that you can't go back forever, right? That this, this regress of explanation needs to stop. Uh, this regress of, um, you could run it with cause or explanation, but this regress of causes that uh, causal, causally dependent on something before myself needs to stop. And the, the proper starting point would be something that's not contingent, that's uh, a necessary being, a being that doesn't depend on another for its existence. That's the cause and the explanation for the contingent reality that we have. So yeah, the Leibnizian cosmological argument, I think, is actually a quite strong argument um, for God. And it focuses on this contingency feature of not just um, things in the universe, but I think the universe as a whole is contingent as well. Now, how have you seen as far as philosophers and uh, go of of recognizing the truth of this argument that there is some sort of necessary thing that has to be kind of the the uncaused first cause, the the prime mover, many ways in which it's been said, you know, the the, the uncaused cause of everything um, that that a necessary thing is required versus you can have an infinite regress of contingent things. Oh, so why, why not just keep going back and back? Um, well, I guess, is this a, um, is this, how, how, maybe how controversial is this? Are there a lot of philosophers that recognize, yeah, that's right. You, you can't have an infinite regress of contingent things. Or is this pretty accepted within philosophy of there needs to be a necessary foundation of all contingent things? Yeah. I mean, nothing's, nothing's, one. you know, there's not much uh, that's 
widely accepted in philosophy right, just because right. philosophy likes to devil. But I, I, I would I would put it this way. I'd, I'd put it in two ways. I think that it's um, a respectable argument or it's as good an argument as, as you get in philosophy. Of course, it's di- disputed, but I think that the premises, if we were to structure it, um, are eminently defensible, right? Okay. So, it's, it's reasonable to hold. Uh, and, and that's, you know, good enough, right, for, for arguments, uh, I think, um, given that we yeah. have disagreement among peers often, right? Um, yeah. So, I think respected, but debatable, of course. Yeah. Now, two objections often that kind of come up against this, I'll throw your way to see your response, uh, that also kind of come up against the Kalam cosmological argument when you're trying to argue that the universe had a beginning, uh, is, is number one of why can't the universe be the necessary thing? Why can't just the universe be what has always existed? Uh, why do you claim the universe is contingent and needing a necessary cause outside of it? Yeah, that is, I mean, Graham Oppie goes that route and, and that's, that seems to be, um, one way that you could go and probably the way that I would go, right? Um, if, if I thought that that was a good explanation. Um, yeah, why can't they, we just stop with the universe? Uh, well, because it just doesn't seem to be a, uh, number one, it does not seem to be a necessary thing, right? It came into being at one, it wasn't, it wasn't here at one time and it came into being at a, at a finite time ago. And so, uh, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that is a necessary being. So, what you would need to do is um, find some way to take to get rid of that finite beginning, I think, partly to make this plausible. And so, you need to go up for some sort of um, eternal multiverse, maybe, or s- some version of uh, an eternal universe. And maybe then, if you could, if you could get rid of the finite beginning, uh, at least you have something that's eternal. And once you have something that's eternal, it becomes a little more plausible um, because maybe it just always did, and it's a brute fact that would seem to be okay. Um, but even then, even if you do that, it still seems to be the case that the universe is just a plurality of contingent things and a plurality of contingent things does not make a necessary being, right? A plurality of contingent things is just a a big contingent thing, right? And so it's not necessary. And so Joshua, Josh Rasmussen, I love his little book, um, how reason can lead to God. He talks about this as a construction error, right? You can't have, um, I think his example is you can't have a bunch of white tiles. And from all those white tiles, if you put them all together, you get a purple floor, right? No, you get a white floor. In the same way, you can't have a bunch of contingent things and put them all together and say, well, the whole is necessary, right? That's just not how it works. That's a construction error. So those are the kinds of things that I would push back on. Um, and that's why I think the argument is, is actually quite strong. Yeah. Now, what about the person who's going to object, uh, kind of what you're talking about there of construction error of, of what about like a fallacy of composition? And so, you know, as, as, uh, for those who don't know that fallacy, it's like saying every part of an elephant is small, therefore an elephant is small, uh, or every, uh, you know, member of the team is good. Therefore the team is good. And just because every part is small, when you put them together, doesn't mean the whole is small. And so someone says, you know, every part of the universe is contingent, therefore put all the parts together. You have a continued universe, uh, commits the fallacy of composition. Uh, what would you say against that? Oh, I, I think that's that's the construction error that I was alluding right. to. So yeah, right. I would I would agree with you. It's a fallacy that we that we don't have any good reason to uh, even with the tile example, right? That Josh uses in his book. I think that shows us that that's that's not a good way to argue. Um, so I, I would think what and what Graham Oppie does is just says it's a brute fact that it's that it's a necessary beginning, you know, yeah. or something like that. And yeah. that's okay, fine. If it's a brute fact, that's as far as you can go. And then you know, there's there's something in the background I haven't mentioned it, but it's the principle of sufficient reason that's uh, that's in play in this particular version of the cosmological argument. But again, that's a uh, um, you know everything that exists has to have a reason for its existence, right? So if there's brute facts um, and and 
that's you can just deny that principle, right? But if that yeah. principle is plausible, then you're you're going to seek some sort of an explanation or at least a reason why you don't need an explanation in this case. And it seems like that would be an ad hoc move to say, well, in every other case, we need an explanation, but not at the origin of the universe or not. I'm sorry, not the origin, but not with respect to the contingency of the universe. Right. Yeah. So transitioning over to kind of some of the other topics uh, that I've talked a little bit less about on this show, um, you know, like beauty, love, pain, happiness, meaning that sort of stuff. We'll just start the next chapter kind of in order, I guess, uh, jumping ahead to meaning. Uh, what, what are you noticing here? What are you, what are you seeing as part of reality that, that shows meaning? Uh, and how does that tie in with the Christian story? Good. So, okay. So the first part of the book, you know, we're, we're looking at the origin debate and there you're going from effect to cause, or you're going from fact to explanation for fact, right? So you're going from that direction. When I get to the morality and the meaning and the happiness chapters, we kind of switch the direction. Now we're looking at the deep contours of the heart, some of these longings that we talked about. And now now we're looking for fit. So the direction is going from the contours of the human heart to what story is the best fit. So we're, so it's kind of a different explanatory um, picture there. Right. And with respect to meaning, um, the way that I kind of began the chapters, I note that there's this, I called it like an existential set, right? There's this, there's these features that every human has. Um, there's these longings of the heart that we all have in that existential set. Looking for my notes so I don't forget them. But they include things like um, purpose and value and um, significance, intelligibility, uh, identity, and transcendence. Like we all want these things. And so the question is, of all the competing stories out there, which one will deliver? It fits well with that existential set. And so in the meaning chapter, I canvas four stories that I think are the most plausible out there and the most prominent. Two are versions of nihilism. Nihilism is just the view that there is no meaning and there are, there's no subjective meaning landscape. There's no objective meanings to the world. There's no meaning of life because, you know, there's no God and things like that. And, and basically argue that none of those satisfy these deep longings for an identity, for a purpose, for value, for, for intelligibility and so on. I looked at um, absurdism as one version of meaning nihilism and then this thing called nice nihilism. And nice nihilism was kind of fun <coughs> to explore I'm actually riffing on Alex Rosenberg, who in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, um, he talked that he, he says that his version of morality is called nice nihilism. There are no moral facts, but we can still be nice people. I think it's actually an apt description of, of meaning nihilism as well. And the idea is, hey, and many Gen Zers evidently are kind of attracted to this idea that, hey, you know what? This is incredibly liberating that there is no meaning in life. Let's go have fun. Let's party. Let's let's get the drugs out, right? And so, in fact, Rosenberg in his book says, if you can't handle the fact that there's no meaning in life, take Paxil. I think that the nice nihilist, <coughs> the Gen Z nice nihilist says, forget the Paxil, right? Let's get the good stuff. And, and so, I wanted to explore that. And what's so interesting is... Um, I mean, I would go that way, right? If, if, this, if there was no God, I think that would sound about right. But the problem is that, and this is to the earlier discussion about pleasure even, um, many people have noted that there's a tight connection between pleasure and meaning, right? And so as you empty the world of meaning, the, ple- the pleasurable things become less pleasurable. Hmm. And they ultimately don't satisfy. And so it turns out on nice nihilism, just like absurdism, that it's, it, it turns out that it's tragedy all the way down. We can't just flip a switch and say, it's comedy all the way down, right? Let's have fun. As it turns out, given the way the world is, it doesn't really work that way. And so consider those. And then I consider um, Owen Flanagan, who's also a Duke philosopher, who wrote a book called The Really Hard Problem. And he's riffing on David Chalmers, who in um, his work in Phil Mind says that the, the, the hard problem is consciousness for materialists. 
And Owen Flanagan says, well, the really hard problem is meaning, meaning in a materialistic world. And so Flanagan's work, <laughs> he tries to argue that there is a kind of an objective value to the world, um, but he grounds it in an atheistic universe. <laughs> and I really, I enjoyed thinking about it. I called it a kind of enchanted naturalism. And the problem, the main problem with this view is it doesn't go deep enough. And and one thing that's been interesting is Joshua Sechrist, who's a philosopher who writes on meaning of life. He talks about the problem of the end. And the problem of the end is, you know, if we're seeking an intelligible world to, to find our meaning, our purpose, our identity, our value. If the end of the whole story is extinction, right? And that is the end of the story given um, naturalism, right? So this is enchanted naturalism. He says that the end of that story infects the entire story, right? As it turns out, it's like right. if you're dating someone, this is an example he gives, like say you're going on a date with someone, but you know you'll never marry them, right? Like it affects how you view the date now, right? Because you know that it's not going to end well or right. it's not going to end anything exciting. The same is the problem with enchanted naturalism. We know the end of the story. It's heat death or cold death of the universe. The species will soon pass away and there will be no conscious agents, right? There'll be no humans and, and things like this. And that infects the whole, the whole story. And so finally, the last story I considered is what I just called in the book, supernatural enchanted, uh, enchanted supernaturalism. And that's just the idea that there's a God and the world is enchanted. There's these deep values. And, and of course, Christianity is one version of that. And so I kind of play a little bit with Pascal and Lewis and Lewis talking about how our longings uh, are like lock and key, you know, with the gospel story and with God and things like that. So, yeah, that's what's going on. It was kind of fun to dig into the literature on, on the meaning of life, which is quite rich, actually. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, it, it was so interesting to read and, and it kind of, as you even explain it there again, as after reading it, you know, I think about uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was asked to speak at my high school chapel on the topic of topic of hope. And then I, okay, you got five minutes to talk about hope. What do you want to talk about? And as the apologist, I'm like, Hey, C.S. Lewis's chapter on hope and mere Christianity exactly. and the mere argument for, yeah. and the argument yep. for, from desire. And so I kind of laid out a very brief you know thing of like, Hey, you all have desires and maybe it's your desire for this chapel to end so you can go eat. But you know, talking yeah. about that idea that we have natural desires that are satisfied by natural things, your hunger, there's food, you're thirsty, there's water. Uh, but there are these deep longings and desires that we have that cannot be satisfied. And so that suggests that maybe we're created for another world. And then, um, you know, how, even as we get into these other chapters, right. Of we have this desire and longing for love that can kind of be satisfied here, uh, but is ultimately satisfied, mm -hmm. uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, kind of along with this, I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on this. Uh, I, I was on Twitter the other day. And uh, there's some good stuff there and there's some bad stuff. Uh, but there was a quote from William Lane Craig that someone was responding to. And I'll read the William Lane Craig quote uh, and then the person's response. And, and curious if you have any thoughts on this. Um, but uh, William Lane Craig says, if there is no God, then the man and the universe are doomed. Like prisoners condemned to death, we await our unavoidable execution. And what is the consequence of this? It means that the life we have is without ultimate significance, value, purpose. Uh, so first, I don't know if you want me to stop there, if there's any kind of thoughts or, or comments you want to make there, agree, disagree uh, with Craig uh, in that initial quote, and then I'll re re read what the person said in response to it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. This I've read things like this from Bill. I, I think uh, ultimately he's right, um, but we want to be careful with what he said here. There's no ultimate meaning and purpose to the world. And that's true, right? If, if the universe ends in, in heat death or cold death, ultimately um, this will all pass and we will be no more. Um, 
So, so there's that's part of it. But why don't you read the reply and then we'll then we'll interact with it. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the reply. The reply says, if there is no God, but there is a universal form of the good, i.e., Platonism, then a life without ultimate significance, value, and purpose could be one lived in accord with that good. It would be finite in duration, but it would still be meaningful, like a flower that blooms then dies. Mm. I agree with that too. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is why these questions, and this is what's so interesting about this. Um, the question of meaning is fundamentally a question about cosmology. Or to put it even more proper to my own discipline, it's a, it's a metaphysical question, right? It all depends on the kind of world that we find ourselves in. So your inter- the interlocker there is exactly right. If reality is in fact platonic, such that there's these platonic objective values that exist. Could you explain in Platonism really quick? Because I know that yeah. can be confusing for some or some have never that? heard of it. Okay, so all it is, and I happen to be a Christian Platonist, so you've asked the right guy on this one, but um, (laughs) all it is is basically, think of it as a kind of dualism. There's the concrete material reality that is the universe, right, that we all find ourselves in right now, and and, and this is populated by things like the table I'm sitting on, the microphones that we're speaking through, these concrete material things. Um, But in addition to the concrete material universe, there are these things called abstract objects. So abstract objects exist just like the table and the chair and our bodies. Um, but they don't exist in time, usually. They don't exist in space, usually. They're, so they're aspatial, temporal. And examples that are usually pointed to would be things like properties. So not, so not the green on your shirt, but the property of green itself that's shared by the green in your shirt and the green in this plant that you can't see in my room here. <laughs> um, so properties, relations, propositions, numbers, uh, sets, these are things that are typically thought to be abstract objects. Maybe fictional characters, if they exist, they would be a- abstract objects. I want to believe that Bilbo Baggins exists. He would be a fictional character. He'd be an abstract object. Anyway, so Platonic atheism is just the view that in addition to the concrete material world, you have this abstract realm <clears throat> of properties, the property being good, the property being true, the property being beautiful. And then g- uh, good things participate in goodness itself and beautiful things participate in beauty itself. And that's a very, that what I just said there is actually my view. Now I'm going to put that in a more theological key, right? But the Platonic atheist is just going to set the God part aside and take that metaphysical picture of the world. Mm -hmm. And so the interlocker is right on my view. If there is something like Platonic atheism, there will be a kind of value like a flower that blooms for time. It's intrinsically valuable and then it passes away. And that's a kind of meaning in life. So one of the key distinctions in this debate is the distinction between the meaning of life and the meaning in life. And that's why I I actually agree with both quotes. Ultimately, there's no meaning of life, but there will be meaning in life, right? Especially on Platonic atheism, because we do have things that are objectively valuable. Is that I don't want to go off on. Uh, yeah. So, would, would a more accurate way of saying that, of like uh, rephrasing the bill, uh, the bill quote of, of saying that, that life is without like transcendent significance and value, something that yeah, transcends the, the physical, you know, uh, yeah. universe? Uh, because ultimately, if if that view is true, and I understand it correctly, that at the heat death of our universe, then so would that metaphysical kind of Platonic world is also dead as well, along with all the people or, or whatever it may be, um, it's it's not realized. And so it ends at that point? Well, yeah, so not on Platonic atheism. Um, Plat- Platonism, these things exist necessarily. So back to that discussion okay. about contingency. Yeah. These things are just all eternal, necessary beings. So the world could pass away, but maybe that Platonic realm could stay. But again, there'd be no creatures that could exemplify goodness. Part- yeah, you know, participate like in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. 
Um, okay, so happiness. Um, I think that a lot of people think that um, happiness is is moving away from Christianity. Christianity is oppressive. Uh, there's a lot of pain caused within Christianity. Um, and uh, you know, uh, how is how is Christianity or the Christian story happy with a lot of people going to hell? Why would God punish them if He truly loves them? So how is it that you're connect? It seems like more people are arguing that in order to be happy, you need to walk away from religion rather than to religion. So how are you connecting happiness to this good, beautiful, true story? Yeah, good. I love that. It all depends on what happiness is, right? So this is why I love being a philosopher. You know, every in every chapter, the first part of it is what is the nature of love? What is the nature of beauty? What is the nature of happiness? What is the nature of meaning? Um, because we can't properly, as Aristotle said, um, you know, we, we must to, to succeed in life, we must answer, we must not fail to ask preliminary questions. And one of the right preliminary questions here is what is happiness, right? And there's this kind of shallow view, this contemporary view, this man or woman on the streets view that happiness amounts to like the pursuit of pleasure, like we mentioned earlier, or the pursuit of success or unfettered desires, whatever that is, you know. Um, but that's a very shallow view. view. Classically, happiness, at least for the Greeks, was intellectual and moral virtue. And for the Hebrews, it was a kind of flourishing in light of our nature. They use the word shalom, but it's the same word. So as it turns out, as Boethius and Pascal and many have noticed, all of us long for happiness, right? It's the one, it's the, the thing that we all long for. Um, as Pascal says, even the, the person who hangs himself thinks that that will make him happy, right? We all long for this. So I, I spent some time in this chapter. I'm actually uh, interacting now with Lady Philosophy in this chapter. Boethius uh, is a, a medieval um, writer who was in jail unjustly, and he's trying to be consoled. And so he has Lady Philosophy. He's actually writing, so she's not really there. But Lady Philosophy is having a discussion with him in this book, Consolation of Philosophy, and they're actually debating the nature of happiness. And so I kind of use that as my foil in this chapter and consider like four counterfeits that are pretty prop popular today too. They were in Boethius's day back in the fifth and sixth century. And those counterfeits are that happiness is wealth or money. Happiness is success. Happiness is pleasure. And then happiness is fame. And considered all those because those are the kinds of things we think about still today and to show that none of these actually are what we long for. I do think all four of those things are ingredients in genuine happiness biblically, Christian, um, you know, putting a Christian hat back on. I think they're ingredients in happiness, but they're not the thing that makes us happy. And for Boethius, and this would be to the right answer, happiness is a, a deep relational good, as it turns out. Remember that, that inverted triangle? What is the thing that objectively that we're made for? It turns out to be our deepest longing, but objectively it's our highest good. Well, it's a union with God. It's a relationship. And so, as it turns out, at least in the Christian story, happiness is four things. Um, it's rightly related to God. It's rightly related to our end, our destiny, our telos, our purpose. It's rightly related to the world and those around us, including other humans. And then it's rightly related within ourselves. That's the integrity of the character piece. Um, and all the other stuff, wealth, success, fame, pleasure, these are ingredients that can come and go, but they're not that which will make us happy. So anyway, I just gave you like a summary of the whole chapter. We I'd kind yeah. of do some fun walking through that, but that's, that's my quick thought on it. Yeah. And I think that's so good because, um, you know, one thing, even just this, again, this last week I'm encouraging my students with in our chapter on entertainment is I think that we have this idea of recognizing happiness is when I am entertained. Um, and yeah. we start, uh, amusing ourselves to death as, as some people call mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. and, and that is what is going to make me happy if I can sit back and just enjoy the pleasures of this world and be entertained. And, and it leads to this lazy, unproductive, uh, life where we're not accomplishing things that I think produce that true 
lasting happiness. And so one of the encouragements, and I and I asked him, I said, why why in a chapter on entertainment, the ethics of entertainment, are we discussing the topic of or of of discovering your motivated abilities and pursuing something valuable, and, and trying to help them reach this, reach this connection of when you have this end goal in mind. He's got to mention the telos and you're working hard towards something that is actually valuable that actually produces within us a joy and happiness because you know, you're doing something worthwhile. And then how, then we bring entertainment alongside that to then add greater pleasure and enjoyment to Mm -hmm. the life that is already a valuable, productive, good life because of what you're just doing. And so, you know, I try to relate it. It's like, what are those things that just, and those are the questions I ask. So if I'm trying to get them to think about this, it's like, what do you do? that just brings you alive. What, mm. what could I talk to you about that you just come alive and go, oh, I could talk for days. Like for me, apologetics, right? You wanna ask me questions, let's go. <laughs> I'll sit there for hours and it just brings so much joy uh, to study and to learn and then explain Christian faith to people. Um, and so like, what is that goal that you're working towards? Are you are you pursuing valuable ends or, or ultimately meaningless things? And so I think there's, there's a lot to that and then when you have that perspective, right, then the fame and the money and that kind of stuff comes and goes, but it's not going to affect as much kind of that ultimate good that we see. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, now with that, I think, you know, kind of, let me see how much time do we have? Okay. 15 minutes. Um, I don't know if I want to stick on this happiness. Maybe I'll come back to it, but um, beauty. Um, it's so common to, uh, I think two things come to mind is I want to talk to you about it is, is that it's common one to hear just beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's all subjective. Uh, there is no objective beauty. Um, it's all subjective to the person. Um, but then also like if you're going to say something is objectively beautiful, um, it, it's much more, maybe it's, it's harder to, to show what truly is objectively beautiful. Um, so I'll show students a, a painting of a beautiful <laughs> landscape uh, or a picture of this beautiful mountain scenery with a reflection off a lake at the base, and then a picture of um, an alley that is just filled with garbage and trash. And they're like, well, yeah, that's beautiful in its own way. You know, it's like, you know, so I'm just kind of, maybe those are two kind of themes I'm not thinking through as you. I'm talking about this is, yeah. is, is how do you kind of, why do, why do we fall into this habit or this, this tendency to say beauty is not objective. Uh, it is just beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a failure to just think it through. We have, you know, in culture we have, uh, and the church is responsible for this because we have a weak theology of beauty, right? Yes, um, we had all these debates about art and beauty and we just kind of lost it uh, through the Reformation. And uh, so what happens is the culture has taken, uh, taken beauty and held it captive and it's slowly working its way, Lord willing, back into the church and into our lives. But um, usually it's, it's something that's treated as a commodity that manipulates and and can fleece our wallets often. But um, yeah, I mean, so I would just wanted to, so so we need to begin with sort of proper thinking on this. And so let's just, so J.P. Moreland, who I studied under at Talbot said, if we want to be good thinkers, we need to learn to make distinctions. And if we want to be good communicators, we lead, need to uh, communicate distinctions. And so here's one distinction that I, I find really helpful in that this debate. And that's the distinction between the experience of beauty versus beautiful things versus beauty itself. Okay, so we have three things there. And it's true that we experience or apprehend beautiful things as perceivers, right? Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's what we do. It's subjective in that sense that we apprehend them with our mind and our, our, our mind's eye. We perceive them. We perceive beauty. That's the experience of beauty. So there is a subjective component to it. 
But I would then distinguish the experience of beauty from beautiful things that I think are objectively beautiful in the sense that there are aesthetic facts that we can attach to them and truly attach to them independent of minds, right? It's, it's just a fact that that sunset's beautiful, whether or not anyone perceives it, or the Rocky Mountains are beautiful or whatever it is. And then I would distinguish, and you can hear that Platonism again, right? Um, beauty itself. Right? So, beautiful things participate in beauty itself. And on the Christian tradition, which is a rich way of thinking about this, beauty itself is identified with deity, right? or at least somehow grounded in deity. And that would be my way of doing this. So, I love Augustine in the Confessions, which is a, the first spiritual autobiography of the West, where he says in chapter, book three, he says of God, he says, he says Dear Father, um, he says, you are the beauty of all beautiful things. And do you hear that? So, we have beautiful things, and then we have beauty itself. And notice Augustine is locating that in deity, in God. And I think that's the right thing to do. He does that with good. He, then he says, you are the good of all good things as well. And I would add the truth in which all true things point. So that's the first thing I would want to say is, no, beauty is objective. It's a feature of the world, and we can give arguments for that. Um, but it's, of course, beheld by the eye. It's beheld by the, the taste. It's beheld by um, the smell or whatever. So that's the distinction I'd want to make there. Um, yeah. Is that good? Maybe stop there. Is that, you know, I, I think that's really good. And, and I, and, you know, I, I talked again with my students. I love this. I love kind of bouncing these ideas about uh, off you. Cause I, I mentioned, you know, the perception of beauty is in the eye of the beholder versus the actual beautiful thing. And so there's whether you like it or don't like it, uh, but that's independent of whether it actually is beautiful or not. And I learned that from someone who also studied under JP Moreland. So it probably comes back to there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of go into what you mentioned there of the arguments for it. And so I think it's easy to say, uh, how do you make an argument for something, uh, an objective fact. Well, you find evidence or you find proof uh, for objective fact, and then you have objective morality. And maybe that's a little bit harder to argue for because again, that's maybe why it's easy to say, you know, scientific facts and our culture is more likely to accept those versus moral uh, facts and moral values. It's going to be more debated, right? And there's going to be more of a subjectivity when it comes to morality. Uh, How do you present arguments for an objective beauty? Oh, good. So, I mean, I think there's, so even with objective morality, there's, there's at least two ways that you can go with this. One is you could just, um, you could, you could just argue indirectly by the, with the failure of moral subjectivism or aesthetic subjectivism, right? So you show the bankruptcy of the, of subjective views on beauty or morality. And, and, and subjectivism is just the claim that all moral facts or all aesthetic facts are indexed to or relative to per individual beliefs or things like that. So if that's if subjectivism is false, well then there's at least some more objective moral facts or some objective moral uh, facts about beauty. Or I'm sorry, object, objective aesthetic facts. So that's one way you can argue for objective moral be, uh, I'm sorry, objective beauty. The other way though and, and CS Lewis will do this. He'll just say we can see by the pure light of reason that there's objective beauty in the world, right? Um, look at that sunset. Look at that Rocky Mountains, right? We just know by by the light of reason. And I think that that's right. Um, I don't think that there's much debate that X is beautiful when X is like a sunset or a sublime, sublime dance or, or whatever. It could be even a batter swing. I mean, even in that, that um, what was it, the garbage landscape that you mentioned, right? There, you see some everyday beauty. Because as it turns out, and this is what's, what's so fun about this chapter, I was able to read some of the literature on the argument from beautiful things to, be- to beauty itself, to God. And um, there's not been a lot 
uh, of movement in the argument from God, to God from beauty. Um, in fact, like early 20th century, F.R. Tennant did some work on that. And then there's been two more recent philosophers, Mark Wynn and Peter Force, have, have interacted with F.R. Tennant's work on the argument from beauty to God. And as it turns out, though, I think the argument's quite powerful because of two facts. Um, and I'll just throw them out there and, and tell you why, and then I'll, I'll stop. But uh, what, uh, what was so fascinating is that one fact that cries out for explanation is the fact that the world is saturated with beauty. Everywhere you look, from the heavens and, and the, the macroscopic to the microscopic and everything in between, you see beauty at, at every turn, right? I live in Southern Florida in, in paradise, basically, and there's beauty at every turn. You live in California, there's beauty at every turn. Um, so the world is saturated. And what's interesting is on naturalism, that would be quite surprising, right? Because if you think about the analogy with human art, we know, because those of us who try to do art know that it's hard to make beautiful things. You have to sort of have a certain skill, a certain know-how to, to make beautiful art. Well, if the, the world, if naturalism is true and the world is just the result of blind processes, you wouldn't expect to find beauty everywhere, right? It, it, because it's hard to come up with that, especially with blind processes. Yet you find it everywhere. So it's not surprising, given theism, because it's, the world on theism is created by a divine artist. It's enormously surprising given naturalism because beauty is not the kind of thing that you would expect to be saturated. So that's just one fact. I, I look at two, two facts um, that I think if you plug them into a kind of argument for best explanation, they turn out to be quite strong uh, from beautiful things to God. So that's a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you kind of laid out those facts a little bit. How, how would it be kind of, uh, I don't know, summarize or kind of, um, you know, more specifically, how would someone kind of use this argument? Because um, I, I feel like you kind of already said it, but I don't know if, I, if I'm, if, if what I'm about to ask is just you just say, hey, I already said that and, and we're good. But I guess I'm also thinking about what I'm going to say while you're talking and I might have missed some things. But, um, you know, we talk about the contingency argument and arguing uh, for God from that, uh, as well as argument from desire. And so you've been talking right there, the argument from beauty. How kind of would that be laid out? How getting from beauty to God? Oh, so it's, it's two premises. And, and so maybe I just need to say them a little clearer, at least in the way I, I structured it in the book. And premise one would be, given theism, it's not surprising that, um, that beauty would saturate this world and that beauty would possess the kind of quality that it does. I call it this transcendent quality, that it, it's evocative of something infinite. So I kind of explain that in the book. So given these two facts about beauty that I identify, and um, it, it's not surprising that the world is the way it is on theism. That's the first premise. The second premise, did I just go? You are still here, but I don't know why you, there it is. You're there. Oh, there I, okay. I don't know what I just yeah. touched. <laughs> okay. No worries. And then the second premise is very simple on naturalism. Uh, these two facts about beauty would be surprising. Therefore, given this likelihood principle, which is the principle of probability, um, the, these two facts about beauty strongly support theism and not naturalism. So yeah, so I kind of formulate that in the book. You can, I can point your listeners there to see the, yeah. the formal structure, but that's perfect. What it is. Absolutely. So, so one way that I try to kind of explain this and maybe you can correct me on this. If, uh, if this is what I think this is what you're, you're talking about, if we, we see it is, is I'll ask my students, I'll, I'll find something like my shirt or something. It's like, you know, what color is this green? Well, how do you know it's green? Uh, well, you, you just look at it, right? You don't have to do a science experiment to test, you know, whatever you can just look at it and you just know it's green. Well, what if someone comes along and says my shirt's red? Well, it's not. Well, how do you prove to them? It's not red. Well, just look at it, right? We have this, this ability to perceive things and to know with pretty certainty that what we see is actually true. And, and I think that we can use that same thing here when it comes to morality and beauty. How do you know that, you know, abusing children for fun is, is wrong? Um, well, just look at it, right? You just watch a child, uh, you know, being abused and say, that's good. 
Um, and the same way I think you can say, you know, look at this beautiful sunset and say, that's ugly. Uh, I think to, to look at a child being abused and say, that's good, uh, is just as wrong of looking at my shirt and saying that's black or that's red. Uh, it's just not. And, and, and for someone to, to say that's ugly or that's good, or that's red to something that clearly is not red, uh, good, uh, ugly or uh, good is, um, is I think you can kind of land on three conclusions. Either one, uh, there's something wrong with their moral perception. Uh, something, you know, like colorblind, you know, it would be one example for the, the shirt. It's like there's something seriously broken about them because they're not able to perceive something that is clearly good as good or clearly beautiful as beautiful. Um, or they're just kind of messing with you. Uh, they, they know the shirt's green. They're just saying it's red because they're being a troll or something like that. Or somehow they're taught their colors wrong or they're just horribly taught wrong. But I think that's hard with morality and beauty because there's Again, something as you're, as we're talking about in this show and trying to pull out is that there's these deep longings and, and deep things within us. We just know that these things are true and beautiful and what story really matches that. So would, is that kind of a, a way that you kind of go about trying to help people understand this argument, how we can perceive these things? Uh, is there anything you would change there? I would just add, I would just build sl- one extra little piece that's kind of cool with this that you, you brought out actually, but I want to make it even clearer. Um, so you're right. In the same way that I can just see with my perceptual faculties that your shirt is green, right? Um, what we have with experiences of morality, like if we see some horrific evil um, or if we see some um, great good, right? Great mercy, act of mercy. We see, not do not only do we see the act, but we have an emotional reaction to that act. And what's so interesting, our emotions, as C.S. Lewis has taught us, are quasi-perceptual faculties that help us to see the value of things. So with beautiful, so beauty and morality are aesthetic. Um, they're they're um, axiological facts, right? They're value facts. And so not only do we have the light of reason and the mind's eye to perceive beautiful things, but we actually have this experience of delight or of, or, or of, mm-hmm like horror, right? That, that will accompany that. And so we not, we don't only get our perceptual faculties, we get the emotions that are quasi perceptual faculty that if those are properly functioning, you're right, we can have twisted moral faculties and emotional faculties that will actually aid us in this case. Um, so yeah, I think that God is, and this is again, going back to these assumptions that drive this work. We're help, I just want to point. That's all we're doing. Look at these clues everywhere. And I just want to, and I spend some time on the nature of them because I want us to think clearly about them so that we would see with fresh eyes and even delight in these things. Um, because then they have this kind of argument, this force that's kind of existential, not just intellectual, right? Yeah. And that's what's going on. Yeah. Everything you said, just want to double click on a few things. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it makes me feel so amazing. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but like I was, I was, I showed my students uh, today a short film um, and I'm having them do an evaluation of it. What does it say is true? What does it say is good? And, and what is it showing as being beautiful? Uh, and there's a part where there's a, in the short film, there's a, there's a breakup. Uh, you don't know why all of a sudden you just know the, the breakup happens. The girlfriend and boyfriend break up. And then they reconcile and then it kind of cuts to the next scene where they're getting married. And there, and, and I always look at the students when, when that scene comes on and there's always this kind of smile that comes over their faces. And I asked them, I said, what is this saying is good? Well, reconciliation is, is good and, and coming back together and, and marriage is good. And I said, what's beautiful here? And they say, oh, it's just beautiful to see that. And I said, I said, why is it that when you saw that scene, as soon as it cuts to the marriage, that there's this like satisfaction inside of you that just comes out where you go, oh, that's sweet. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's beautiful. And you're satisfied to see that broken relationship healed, mended, and they're married. 
And, and like, I think that's kind of what you're, that's what you're talking about here. This, that it's just that longing inside of us for that brokenness to be healed. Um, and when we see that come out in entertainment, it's like, Oh, you know, and, and so draw that out. Why do we have that feeling? What actually then satisfies that feeling and what story actually then gives us that ultimate satisfaction and healing of brokenness, I think is, is a way that we can approach this conversation of showing how Christianity really does satisfy those deep longings and desires that we have. Not only just true, good, beautiful, satisfying. Um, Now of these, maybe my, my last question to you as we're running out of time um, of all these, do you, do you find that some of them are more powerful than others? Uh, Do you kind of use it as a cumulative case? Do you kind of have all in your tool bag? So however the conversation goes, you can address it. Or are there some of these that you really have seen be more persuasive? Oh yeah. I think it is person relative, right? uh, I think that they're all persuasive uh, at a certain level. I, I should say they're all to me clues that I do think point individually to God. But I think cumul- cumulatively, um, it's very powerful. But I do think it's person relative. Some people are wired and they want to know the empirical evidence. Other people are more in tune with their existential fit kind of stuff. And so maybe the argument from love, which isn't something that you usually see in a work in apologetic, might be really right. persuasive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why I just want people to see, again, treat people as fully embodied humans that everything points to God. So let's help them interpret that rightly and, that's, and, and see that, in fact, what we long for is the Christian story that's good and true and beautiful story. Yeah. Well, that's good. The one that you say is sometimes most persuasive is the one that we did not get to. So you'll have to buy the book if you want the chapter on love. Um, Well, thank you so much, Paul, for taking this time and chatting with me. Uh, Kind of where can people go maybe to get a few more resources, pick up a copy of the book uh, and follow kind of what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm online. You can find me. I've got a website, paul-school.com. Um, on Facebook, Twitter, you can find me there. And you can go to my faculty page and come join us, right? We're doing good work in philosophy of religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University. So yep. if people really want to do a deep dive into all this stuff, there check out uh, the program there at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be with you again. All right, everybody, there it is. A good and true story. Paul Gould, check it out, pick it up. Uh, Such a good read. Hope this conversation has been a blessing to you and you have enjoyed it as well. As we come up on the end of the year, again, just a reminder, if this ministry has been a blessing to you, it'd be such an encouragement. And I would love just for you to come alongside and support with an end of the year financial gift. All the information is below on YouTube, or you can check out the website, think-well.org. If you are listening on podcast or radio, and that would just be such a blessing to end this year strong and start off next year well. Along with that, there's always going to be conversations and interviews coming up. Uh, sign up for the monthly newsletter. Uh, it's more of a training letter as I try to equip you to address one cultural issue each month. Uh, this month is going to be on marriage and addressing the marriage conversation and topic. So if you want that, uh, again, the sign up form below is on YouTube. Other than that, uh, just continue to think well, think deeply about God and Christianity. It's worth thinking about. There's tons of other resources to help you do that thinking um, that I want to continue to help you with. If you enjoy this, share it, like it, send it to someone else who can be blessed by this. Again, as, as, as mentioned at the beginning, this book was written for non-believers, something maybe good to give out to some people that might be interested in reading. So hope this has been a blessing and encouragement. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next time with another conversation. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Bye, everybody.